The music industry in the late 90s and early 2000s was one of the most turbulent times in history. Record labels were caught off guard, sleeping at the wheel. With the invention of the internet looming over the entire planet, labels were just seemingly unaware of the magnitude of change about to hit every brick and mortar style business. While the dot-com bubble saw businesses like eBay and Amazon rise from the ashes and become world players, the recording industry doubled down on physical sales, selling CDs in record stores. It took a 20-year-old uni student by the name of Sean Parker to wake up the indestructible sleeping giant that was the music industry. They didn't know it yet, but the very foundations on which music stood was about to collapse. This is the war for all music kind, a historical tale, an army of multi-million dollar labels and industry heavyweights fighting a war against music consumers, kids, the very people who made the industry so rich to begin with. Welcome to the Sound Age. I'm sorry, I just can't... You've got a lot of things to say, why don't you just say it? I don't mean to be The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. The Sound Age. Like all wars in history, there were precursors to the main battle. With the gift of hindsight, these warning signs are clear as day. But it's also pretty crazy to believe that record labels didn't catch on to these trends. Here are the markers that played a role in the wars to come. 1994, when the internet was just in its infancy, a piece of software was made available as shareware. It was called an MP3 encoder. The technology had been theorised for decades, but this was the first time in history anyone who downloaded the shareware had the ability to turn a WAV file into an MP3. If that doesn't mean anything to you, well, web files are about 40 megabytes, MP3s are about 4 megabytes, with about zero loss of quality. Then in 1995, the first MP3 players were built into computers. Now, you could store and play a huge amount of songs on your computer without ever filling up your hard drive. In 1997, mp3.com was launched. This website is the granddaddy of so much of our industry today. MySpace, Napster, iTunes, Spotify, TikTok, Bandcamp, Internet Radio, all of these tools can be traced back to mp3.com. I might do a whole episode on mp3.com and its influence on the world, but to give you a basic understanding, the site allowed artists to upload their music and share it with the world. That doesn't sound that impressive, does it? But this was 1997. This was completely unheard of back then. And finally, the last piece of the puzzle before the actual war started was called Music Match Jukebox. It was released in 1998. Before this, MP3 encoding and putting songs online was not really that popular. Music Match Jukebox changed that, because now it allowed you to rip songs off a CD. Again, normal technology now, but this was breaking ground in 1998. This meant anybody was able to take their CD collection rip it onto a computer and then encode it down to the smaller mp3 file. The stage was finally set for the war to begin. Here's chapter one, the war. Sean Fanning and Sean Parker launched Napster on July 1st, 1999. The idea was to be an independent peer-to-peer -peer file sharing application, focusing on sharing mp3s. Anyone could take CDs they owned, rip the songs to mp3 and share them with anybody else on Napster. It grew exponentially in popularity. 
Uni students were by far the biggest users with the fast broadband services of universities being the perfect place to host the new software. And in early 2000, just over half a year after Napster's launch, the first major shot in the war was fired. Several US college radio stations began playing an unmixed, unreleased, leaked version of Metallica's next single, I Disappear. It's, it's it, control. At, at the end of it, it's control and it's about the people. Part of what we're trying to do here is make people understand that what they're doing is illegal. I'm not even going to get into the moral issue, but it's illegal. And if we can get one by one Because it's people, theft of property in your it's judgment. It's theft of property, absolutely. Before this, Metallica were totally unaware of Napster. But on inspection, they found their entire back catalogue available for free to download. They immediately sued Napster for the sum of $10 million in damages. Napster argued they had no way of knowing who was sharing what music. So Metallica hired the very 90s job of internet detective to painstakingly collect the names of over 300,000 individuals who had downloaded Metallica's songs illegally. They then demanded these users be blocked from accessing Napster which Napster agreed. Although this was pointless because the users could just rejoin under a new name. Metallica and mainly Lars Ulrich then went on a public campaign to drum up support for their cause. This was a PR disaster and really only gained more support for their opposition. Magazines incorrectly painted attention-grabbing headlines such as Metallica sues its fans. The problem was Metallica were essentially complaining to the very same people who were downloading Metallica songs. They came across as poor little millionaires crying about lost income while flying around in private jets. What's your beef with Metallica then? Why not let the people listen to music? As far as I'm concerned, Metallica is off my best album. I've removed all the Metallica files from my, from my hard drive. I don't want anything to do with Metallica anymore. Fans reacted negatively. In the early 2000s, Lars Ulrich was the most hated man in music. People publicly burned Metallica CDs in the street. There were protests. There were US Senate hearings and daily media coverage on cable news. When the case was finally heard in court, of course, Metallica won. Then the Recording Industry Association of America, better known as the RIAA, followed suit. Remember that name because it will become a big player going forward in this war. Speaking on behalf of all record labels and artists, they demanded Napster remove every copyrighted song upon a musician or label's request. Failure to do so would result in shutting down the website. Napster obeyed these orders and then tried to sell their company. The $94 million sale was blocked though by the courts and in 2002, Napster filed for bankruptcy. The king of music piracy was dead after two short years. But the war, the war had just begun. Chapter two, guerrilla warfare. With every war, if the leadership is removed without an alternative replacement, you create a vacuum. That's common knowledge in wars and it's no different here. With the death of Napster, the record labels sighed a breath of relief. But the opposition, the music fans in this case, were hungry for freedom of music exploration. The labels were working with Steve Jobs to create iTunes at this time, but it was not the same. Rightly or wrongly, teenagers had had a taste of unlimited music, 
and now they felt entitled to their musical freedom. And out of the ashes of Napster came a whole new army of peer-to-peer sharing software. Kazaa, LimeWire, Nutella, Morpheus, eDonkey2000, LuckyWire, SoulSeek, Emule, Grokster, and many, many more. These were all just like Napster, peer-to-peer sharing applications. But they proved to be a much harder beast to slay. Unlike Napster, these new peer-to-peer sites had a decentralized server. The music was not kept at one location. This meant it was much harder to prove the sites themselves were guilty of anything. The previously mentioned RIAA sued, and this time, they lost. The courts saw these new peer-to-peer sites as nothing more than a copying machine, possibly used in music theft, but the sites themselves would not be held responsible for the actions of their users. Having lost the battle, the future of music was at stake. The RIAA decided to take this war to the streets. Actually, the suburbs. And they decided to go nuclear. Yesterday, the music industry took another step, for the first time going after people downloading and swapping music online. If they couldn't destroy the infrastructure, then they had no other choice but to destroy the people. Lawsuits were sent out to thousands of people in 2002. The first case was brought forward in 2003. The multi-million dollar music industry backed by teams of lawyers against 12-year-old Brianna Lehera. She stood accused of downloading nursery rhymes for her very own entertainment. Her parents, fearing financial ruin, agreed to an out-of-court settlement of $2,000 in damages. And the 12-year-old Brianna was forced to make a public apology as part of the agreement. The coming months saw hundreds of cases, each one demanding tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages against individuals. And each one would settle for around two or $3,000. They even created a website, p2plawsuits.com, where anyone who had received a legal threat could simply pay $2,000 on the site and they would drop the case immediately. It was clear what the RIAA were doing here. It was a scare campaign. They wanted to extract whatever little money they could from children, grandparents, students and low-income workers. Student Jesse Jordan was sued for creating his own little search engine to help legally download music. He settled for $17,500, which just happened to be the exact amount he had in his savings at the time. 83-year-old Gertrude Walton was issued a lawsuit demanding damages in the tens of thousands of dollars. It was issued months after she had died. This was dirty business, destroying the little guys. But the fear campaign was working. Illegal downloading slightly decreased in 2003, for the first time since Napster began. CD sales even slightly increased in 2004. But with every case came a swarm of negative media coverage. And people started to fight the charges. A Chicago woman fought the lawsuit and she lost, having to pay $22,000. An Arizona man fought and lost, having to pay $45,000. A single mother of five successfully argued that the software was not hers. She did not know who downloaded it. The RIAA had to drop her case. But then they immediately went and sued her son for $31,000. And then came the anti-hero of this story, someone you've probably never heard of. Her name was Jamie Thomas. She was a single mother of two from Minnesota. So when he said, well, pay us this amount and we'll go away, I'm kind of like, 
why would I pay you for one, for something that isn't here, and for two, for something I didn't do? Holy cow. She turned down the $3,000 settlement and decided to fight the lawsuit, claiming she had no idea how these songs got onto her computer. When it was found out in court that she had lied and replaced her hard drive, she was ordered to pay a massive $222,000 in damages. She appealed and again, she lost. Now, the court demanded that the single mum pay $1.9 million. And of course, this case received huge media attention. Even though she clearly was in the wrong, she gained the support due to the bullying tactics of the music industry. Lawyers lined up to help people like Jamie, and these lawyers would be working pro bono. This is where the tide changed. What did people like Jamie have to lose? Her court costs were free, and if she won, her damages would be dropped. If she lost, she could simply claim bankruptcy, and the IRAA would have went through all of this for nothing. They became increasingly desperate. In Jamie Thomas's $2.2 million case, the RIAA offered a settlement of just $25,000, with some of that even going to charity. And remarkably, she turned it down. A news article in 2010 had showed the RIAA had spent $17 million in lawsuits while only receiving about $391,000 in settlements. Jamie Thomas took her case all the way to the Supreme Court and again, she lost. As a last-ditch effort by the RIAA to save face, they offered Jamie a settlement agreement of just having to pay $2,000 and make a public appearance denouncing music piracy. And you guessed it, Jamie Thomas refused. By 2013, she had exhausted all her legal rights, filed for bankruptcy, and never had to pay a single cent. Meanwhile, costing the music industry millions of dollars. She was never gonna win. She was guilty of theft. But it was never about winning for her. She was standing up against the bullying tactics of a major corporation. It was a David versus Goliath story where both sides were essentially evil. Because of this, the RIAA's reputation was destroyed. People's hatred of the music industry was at an all-time high, and they failed to make any money out of the war. You know, I've been an avid record collector for over 40 years. Right. I've got nearly 10,000 records. I you turned a music fan into an enemy. Chapter 3. The Fallout. After 35,000 lawsuits and tens of millions of dollars lost, the RIAA announced it would stop going after individuals. Essentially, they lost. While they managed to destroy much of the peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure through changes to the laws, piracy remains relevant till this day. Legal downloading never amounted to any great heights. iTunes and Google Play were a stopgap solution to help slow the flood, and Spotify was already in existence by this stage. It was a compromise, a nil-all draw. The war ended without any parade. The people could listen to music for free, but no, they could not own it. While the labels would also make some income, but it was a far cry from the industry's peak in the 80s and the 90s. To this day, the RIAA continue to fight from the shadows. Unable to declare defeat, now their enemy is the multi-billion dollar streaming sites. They attack them with propaganda campaigns. You've seen these campaigns. They come in the form of news reports on your Facebook feed. Insert band here has 20 million streams and only receives a $56 royalty check. It's fake news, but that's the era we live in. 
Every time a report like this arises, it's shared tens of thousands of times. Millions of people get angry at the streaming sites. Podcasts and interviews are discussing the evil streaming sites hurting this major music corporation. It's all propaganda. And the people, the music fans, and now the pawns, unknowingly fighting the RIAA's war for them. As I said, no one won this war, and every side, if we're being honest, was in the wrong. For legal reasons, I will neither confirm nor deny that I had Kazar with hundreds, possibly thousands of songs downloaded. But the aftermath has actually left a better world for musicians, if you think about it. For the first time in history, any musician with the right skills and hard work can make a career. Sure, it's more difficult, and there's less money if you reach the top. That's because the money is more evenly spread out, believe it or not. The cost of producing music has drastically decreased. There's many more income streams now. And we, the fans, are probably the real winners in the long run. Thanks to streaming sites, we have it our way. We have total music freedom. Without the stigma of being a criminal. Thanks for listening. The sound.